0: His dog came on point. It was one of his old favourite pointers. And he unhooded the falcon, let her go, and she went off a little way and sat on a rock. And he said, oh, she'll rouse and mute in a minute and then she'll be gone. Well, she didn't. Swung the lure, she wouldn't come. So he walked all the way over, picked her up, hooded her, brought her back, put her gear, put her back on the cage. Took the tear sloth, very famous tear sloth he had at the time. Took all its gear off. Yep, dog's still on point, no problem. Cast the tear sloth. Tearsaw went off, went into a puddle to have a bath. So he walked over, got a saw, hooded it up. He said, Do you want to fly? I said, No, no. And dog was still on point and he just went, You're all right, you're all right. So as the dog, if it was going to go, would go. Okay, put the, fal- the tearsaw back on the couch, took the falcon again to crop, gave her a chick leg just to sort of stimulate things a little bit, let her go. Up she went this time properly. We walked round and headed the point. Now it's, by now, it's got to be 20, 25 minutes. We headed the point, we waited till she was in exactly the right position. The dog was called Duffy. And Roger said, "Right, get him up, Duffy.
1: Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast. And this is the third episode now of our international series featuring falconers from the UK. I have to start off by mentioning the two falconers who, without their help, this series wouldn't have been able to happen. The first is Neil Davies from Pursuit Falconry and Conservation magazine. You've probably heard us promote the magazine on the podcast before, but if you haven't got a chance to check it out yet, I highly recommend it. And the publication is doing a lot to promote the art of falconry across the world. There's always lots of great content in it. So if you haven't subscribed yet, go to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and sign up for your subscription. It's well worth it. The other Falconer is one that you've heard on the podcast before, being Simon Tires. He is the author of The Specialist Falcon, and the book is about his personal approach to lowland game hawking. It's been described as being one of the best modern books of our era by a lot of Falconers, and is well worth the read. I found this book to be very informative and very enjoyable, and so I highly recommend that you go to thespecialistfalcon.com and pick up a copy and you can even have the copy signed by Simon as well so thank you again very very much Neil and Simon for bringing me over and allowing me to help all these falconers from the UK have a voice and share their stories and experiences with the world I hope you the listeners enjoy the series a lot and get something out of it and thank you very much for all of your continued support and for listening and this third episode of our international series bringing you falconers from the uk features bob dalton who on top of being a known author is also the founder chairman and trustee of project lugger i think you may find the insights that he had to share about this conservation effort to be pretty interesting and on top of the stories such as the one that was teased at the beginning of the episode I hope that you find this conversation very entertaining and enlightening. And with all that being said, I will go ahead and turn things over to my conversation with Bob Dalton. Here we go. Appreciate you taking the time, Bob, to kind of have a little chat with me here and fill me in on kind of what's been going on with you and get to know you a little bit. So I appreciate it. No problem. It's absolute pleasure. Uh, My name's Bob Dalton, obviously. I've been a
0: a falconer here in Britain for uh, just on 53 years. I fly or have flown mainly long wings. I have no experience with eagles. I've flown quite a few excipiters, but if I'm truly honest, they don't float my boat. (laughs) I've flown uh, um, two or three Harris Hawks. In fact, one I was very fond of and flew for almost 30 years until she died. Um but mainly my, my passion in life has always been long wings. My first ever bird was a passage red headed Merlin sent over from Pakistan, which cost me four pounds, which doesn't sound much, but at that time, nineteen sixty nine, I was earning five pounds a week. So after tax and all the bits and pieces I used to get four pounds seven and six, which is about thirty two and a half P now. So four pound was a lot of money uh but we had fun um i was i had no one to help me uh it was falconry was something i'd been in, it, fired up to do after a couple of things unconnected things had happened but they both ended up in firing me up enough to buy my own bird and like no one should ever do i bought the falcon and then found out how to train it how to equip it but after six long grueling for the falcon not me months we took our first head of quarry and then until unfortunately uh, the young the falcon got sick and died we never looked back so that then secured me my love of falcons and i went from a little red-headed merlin flying at 6 ounces to a, a haggard lugger falcon Again, if you read the literature that was available at that sort of time in England, it will tell you that lugger falcons are crap and they don't catch anything. <laughs> well, I've never heard such rubbish in all my life. No one had read me the book and no one had read the book to the lugger. And we caught a sufficient number of rooks to be able to hold our heads up and say we were rook-hawking. And she continued with me till her third season when she was killed in the field by a wild peregrine. <laughs> so...
1: Wow. Well, that's an interesting start, you know, especially, you know, talking about, uh, you know, your early days and, you know, what exactly got you into falconry?
0: Two separate things. And they both happened within a little while of each other. And the first one sort of fired my interest in more raptors than falconry. And the second one cemented it towards falconry. My uncle, who used to work abroad, I, I had, my mother was one of six children, so I had three uncles on her side of the family. One was a jeweller, one was in the merchant navy, and the other one was always a bit of a dark sheep of the family. <laughs> and when I was a youngster, he gave me a present for my birthday, and it was a leather thing with straps and buckles. And I said to him, it's very nice, what is it? And he said, your mother says you're an intelligent boy, find out. <laughs> and just by pure coincidence, I went on a school trip about a month later, And in the British Natural History Museum, I don't even know if they still have it, but they used to have a hunting section and there was a hooded cheetah in the uh, part of the exhibition and the thing my uncle had given me was a hood for a cheetah. Hmm. Now, my parents were very unreasonable. They wouldn't let me have a cheetah. (laughs) But I did read up on falconry because in the same exhibition were hooded falcons. And again, quite rightly, they wouldn't let me have one until I was older and and actually left home. And that was my red-headed Merlin. So it was two things gelling together that sort of fired me up and made me determined to become a falconer.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can honestly say this is probably a first in that I don't think I've met anyone yet who's... First, or one of their first couple birds was a, was, a redheaded, <laughs> was a red-headed falcon, red-headed merlin, however you want to call it. But Well, of course, when you
0: are um, totally ignorant because you are a complete beginner, <laughs> you don't appreciate what you've got. It's, you know, and of course, whatever it does, you think that must be the norm. Mm-hmm. But it, obviously it had to be a, a tremendously tolerant falcon because it put up with my inept handling and my, I'm sure, many, many mistakes. But we did go on to catch a great many starlings don't think we worried the southeast of england's population in general but we worried a few little pockets of it
1: <laughs> well fair enough i mean and your experience then because i've always i haven't talked to too many people that have that have flown those birds and out of just i mean curiosity and and your experience what has been the main difference i mean have you flown other just merlins just yes, and stuff Yes, I a lot of merlins. Yeah, so I mean, what what do you think has been the main difference between those? this is kind of a a little bit of a of a side question, but I have always been very intrigued by by the red-headed merlins and I I,
0: I think um to be honest I think the name merlin is a total misleading one. The other pe- some people call them redneck falcons, some people call them you know redneck falcons, etc. Right. Um but I think in, in the way they hunt, particularly in the wild, having seen them in the wild in Pakistan and India, I think that they're far more an Asian aplomado falcon. The sexual dimorphism is not so great, but the hunting styles are very similar, i.e. the males are chivier, the females are a little bit higher up, hanging back to grab whatever is flush. They re- I've seen wild aplomados hunting in pairs in Brazil and Peru, and I've seen, as I say, wild redheads in Pakistan, and they rem- their tactics in the wild reminded me of each other very much. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I've um, I've not really ever heard that analogy either, but that's kind of interesting. I mean, it makes sense. I, I've bred
0: albatrosses for many. I was one of the first people in England uh, to continually fly them at quarry, and I used to actually in the early now they're sort of de rigor, and people really rate them. But when I first started flying them here. I used to get all the jokes about who's a pretty boy then, because of the fantastic colours and everything. <laughs> and then when people actually would come out and see one fly, then that tended to silence them a little bit. So right. I flew, I flew them for quite a few years, and I, I bred. In fact, I wrote a book on flying them. So right. they really impressed me. And redheaded merlins are, are, are quite similar, quite similar. Yeah.
1: That's very interesting. Yeah, like I guess I've not, I've not really heard that analogy before. But I've also not. Talk to many people that's flown both species, so I, that's an interesting insight for sure. Um, so, like as far as the experience with with the opalomatos, and I mean, what what's been your favorite long wing to fly? Your favorite species? So there, there
0: are only peregrines. Everything else are, are toys on the sideline.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: I've, fl- I've flown jers prairies. The only falcon I'd really like to fly that I haven't. Uh, is a tighter. I haven't flown in New Zealand, but I have no desire to do so either. Uh, I'm not deriding them. They just, they don't appeal to me. Right. Um, But of all the falcons I've ever flown, I've only ever had one haggard jerk in one passage. uh, All the rest have been uh, domestically produced jerks, but nothing beats a peregrine. Peregrine was designed for use by man. It's it's the ubiquitous falconry tool. Hmm, okay. And the, the day that a peregrine doesn't excite me, you can screw the lid down on my coffin.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, normally people always end up finding that one thing. I mean, I've got friends that are the opposite of us because I'm not a big exhibitor guy either. Uh, but I've got some friends that literally I'm pretty sure that if they aren't able to fly goshawks anymore for some reason they probably will just stop (laughs) the the, the
0: difference is i think with a lot of people is they don't if you don't mind me saying so this is a generalization across all countries people don't have liberal minds Mm. now i've had flown goshawks and i like to think one of the ones i flew was exceptionally good i love sparrowhawks i love to go and see other people fly sparrowhawks but they don't float my boat enough to put up with their tantrums, especially as I myself, am getting older. <laughs> I can't, a goshawk sulking up a tree, I would leave it and go and take up chess or something. <laughs> but I, I can understand the passion. I really can. Mm. What I can't understand is people's closed minds who, if you talk to someone who flies a red tail, it's not my thing, but I'd still like to go and see it fly, see it hunt, and I appreciate what it does. But someone who just closes their mind, no, I'm not going to go and watch that because I don't like X. Then you you need to get a bit of a life, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all are, are pretty. I mean, the guys that that are in my group that I hunt with consistently at home, and we all support each other, be brush for each other, regardless. And even though like a couple of my friends just absolutely hate Harris, <laughs> like hate watching Harris hawks fly and stuff. They, I mean, it's part of the group. They just what you do for each other, and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, I mean- I'm
0: 72 years old now, and I happily go and beat hedgerows with a stick for my friend Sparrowhawk mm-hmm. because I want to see the Sparrowhawk fly. Yeah. I curse and swear at him at the end of the day because I'm tired, but <laughs> I still I'm still happy to go. I, and what if I just one of the things about modern falconry that really upsets me is we just spoke then about peregrines or whatever it happens to be gossip, whatever it is that floats your boat. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, be about 14, I suppose. I spent the entire day on three different trains getting to someone's house. So for 20 minutes, I could look at a train peregrine on a block, not see it fly, but just see a train one in the flesh and then spend the rest of the day on three different trains and a big walk getting home. Now I talk to some younger people and I say, what you find? And they'll say, only a peregrine. Well, if you think it's only a peregrine, Go and do something else. <laughs> Leave the peregrine to someone who wants to fly it. Mm-hmm. And I feel this, whether it's a goshawk, a tail, a harris, or whatever it is, give it your heart and soul. If you don't, go and do something else.
1: Totally understand. Yeah, I mean, it's it. if it's not fun, then why are you doing it? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. So going back to the beginning still, what do you think were some of the most important and, and hard lessons that you kind of had to teach yourself, I guess, or learn the hard way?
0: I think probably the the lesson I learned most from being young probably didn't reflect on it till slightly later. I didn't know enough to appreciate what I was learning. But I, I still say to when I'm talking to youngsters now, in my opinion, you can tell a good falconer from the slips he refuses, not the slips he takes on. I would trudge across fields and one of my, as I got to know a little more, I had a friend who used to come with him. He wasn't a falconer, but he was a, a hair coursier man, he used to learn, like running dogs. But he would come because it's a field sport. And we would get into a field, say, low, and I was with the lugger and he'd see some rooks. He'd go, there, there, fly it, fly it. And I'd say, no, she's got no chance. It's downwind or it's too close to these trees or whatever. And he'd get so frustrated with me. But then when we had, I fly at the one I wanted to slip at, and he saw good sport. Then he'd say, oh, now I understand. That was until the next time, and then he'd curse me again.
1: <laughs> yeah, we all have those slips, I think, that we're berating you know, our hunting partner or whatever for, for turning down. And <laughs> later, sometimes they admit that, yeah, I should have, I should have let the yeah. bird go or whatever. But The best yeah.
0: falconry expert in the world when you're hunting is a guy who doesn't have a hawk on his fist.
1: Exactly. He knows
0: all there is to know.
1: As as we love to to say to each other in our groups, like yeah, you can you can always tell whose bird's out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can always tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's really cool though. I mean, like I said, it, it, I don't talk to very many people that have that kind of start, and I'm always interested. As I, as I've said many times before on this podcast, I'm I'm always very interested to talk to people that kind of had to learn the hard way and didn't have that mentorship and. I mean, do you think, though? I mean, in your humble opinion, that having somebody to mentor you still is is by far and away the the way to go.
0: Thousand percent, yeah. Thousand percent, yeah. If I could have had the chance, had it been available to me, I would have grabbed it with both hands. Mm-hmm. And I did eventually, even though I was into my third Falcon when it happened, I did find a respected Falcon or respected amongst our community at the time. And I asked him, would he? fine-tune me for want of a better expression. Mm. And I used to go at weekends and clean his weatherings and clean his mews, and grease his equipment in exchange for knowledge. Mm. And I can't see the... And if you feel that's menial and below you, the same as the other comments, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Yeah, I'm 72. I've been flying falcons for 53 years. I to learn... I, to say every day would be an exaggeration, but at least once a week I learn a little wrinkle or something that had never occurred to me. If you stop learning, if you close your mind, you might as well just give up. Fulcrum sure. is the greatest sport in the world. I love it. I live it. I breathe it. But I'm happy to in, absolutely take on whatever there is to be taken on. Yeah. I just love it.
1: Yeah. I mean, every bird's different and there's a different lesson to be learned all the time from from these animals and from each other. I mean, and you don't always have to learn from people's successes either. You can learn no. from other people's failures as well. <laughs> so.
0: well I, I can teach a few people with
1: those. <laughs> <laughs> we all we all have them, and uh, you, you haven't been doing this either right or doing this long enough if you haven't failed to some degree. You know, so I yeah, there's. You don't really learn from the uh, all the successes, as they say. No, you definitely yeah. learn from the from the failures. You have
0: to take the good with the bad and. Sure. Extrapolate what's the, the good thing.
1: Like I said, it's it's one of those things that you have to continue to be open-minded. I agree. And, I mean, out of curiosity, though, what at, at what point did you say, okay, I have knowledge that I want to share or... I want to be self-loathing enough to, to take on the venture of writing books and, <laughs> and do all that kind of stuff. Like if, <laughs> I te- if I
0: tell you how I ever came to be an author for Me, you won't believe me. <laughs> well, let's I, hear it. M- there used to be, in this country, It's 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 been absorbed and changed now. And it's, it's appeared in so many guises. But way, way back, I'm talking now, way back, it was a weekly magazine and it was called Countryman's Weekly. And it was mainly for the uh, rough shooting And um, dogging fraternity, people who went, not dogging in that way, but dogging um, on shoots, picking up pheasants, things like that. And it used to have, on a quite regular basis, a falconry page. So I used to buy it, obviously, for that reason. And I was sitting reading it one evening, or devouring it. I didn't read it, I used to devour it. And I won't use all the words I was using, but having finished reading this article, I was just repeatedly using bad language and saying what rubbish this was. <laughs> and my wife said to me, what on earth are you going on about? I said, this article, it's a thousand words to say something It would be two sentences would be too many words. <laughs> and it, she said, I don't think I did, but because she's a woman, so she's right. She <laughs> kept on and on and, and said, well, in the end, she said, well, if you can bloody well do better, write something yourself. And at the time I was training a prairie falcon that four different falconers had had and had given up on because she was, in their opinion, not She wasn't nasty. She was just a prairie. And I went on and I hunted that prairie at Rooks for five years with great success until one day she decided that the Rooks probably in Ireland or somewhere were better looking and left. (laughs) But what my wife said to me stung at the time. So I, uh, this was pre-computer and even word process. So I went and bought a real cheap second-hand typewriter and I wrote an article for this, this paper and sent it in, It fully inspecting, never to hear anything again. And they said, if I had any more, would I send them in? So I sat and wrote another one. And then the editor got in touch and said, would I write a fortnightly column? And then it started. And then I was um, probably too much whiskey one night talking to a group of friends. And they said, oh, you should put this stuff in a book. So I thought, well, a book's only a series of articles. So we wrote the first book, and then I found out how much I got in royalties and how much the publisher got. So my next eleven books, I published myself.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Now that's, um, I think that's a way a lot of people get into doing things. Though is someone makes that little challenge, or yeah. or is just like someone gets uh, mad enough, or whatever that you know, well well, you know what? Screw it. If I don't like it, then I should do something about it, type of thing. Well,
0: we have a perfect example of a way everybody's got a book in them. They say that, and I'm sure it's true. You're going to speak to another gentleman, uh, uh, an absolute bastion, of British folk me today, and he's got a book out quite shortly. Now, he won't mind me saying, because it's public knowledge, he's dyslexic, and he's good at reading, as many dyslexic people are, but he can't write well. So we gave him a tape recorder and said, Just speak, just speak your book and we will draft it for you and we'll punctuate it for you. And he's had the final read through and say and all the rest of it. But that's how we've put his book together for him. And believe me, I know it's not out yet, but I edited it and it's incredible. It's a guy who spent 28 years flying the same golden eagle. The relationship they had was incredible. But he didn't think it was at all possible to write a book. Everybody, if you want to do it, do it. Same with everything in life. If you want to do it, try it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And um, I mean, for the most part, I don't I don't have the patience in my life right now to do that. I just talk into a microphone with other people. <laughs> and that's that's kind of my version of of a book right now. But I admire people Yeah, but you still
0: communication, is it? You're still passing the Sure. Your stuff on. That's what counts. Sure. Yeah, I just Sh- sharing knowledge is yeah. probably how civilization moves.
1: Sure. Yeah, no. I mean, I totally agree and that's why I do it this way because that's what I know and and kind of what I have the time effort and energy capacity to, to do, but I respect people a lot that at least have the, I don't know, the, the motivation or the willpower to, to try, because I know how much work it takes just to even, I mean, I've written an article or two, like I, I get it and writing as, as you, so eloquently put it, a series of articles to make a book. <laughs> I mean, that, that takes a lot. It takes a lot of effort. I mean, I've got friends that have written other books and stuff too. It took them the better part of two years to write, mm. you know? And, um, I mean, my hat's off to you and in you're, in well, your I, I
0: do. I also believe in, uh, I'm not a big headed person. I really don't believe, believe I am. I don't know how others perceive me, obviously, but I don't write books to be the big I am, but it is still an ego trip to write a book. (laughs) Otherwise you would never set out. So when I, every, it doesn't matter, even though I'm now, I don't know, written 12 books, I think I'm not really sure. And that's not an ego thing either. I genuinely not very sure. But when (laughs) I first get given the new book and it's actually tactile in my hand, it still excites me as much as the first one. So for me, it's a good thing. Yeah. Exactly. And they sell, so other there must be some other people that think it's a good thing, so
1: yeah, I mean it's just like anything else. There's gonna be people that love it, and there's gonna be people that hate it, you know, whatever. But as long as you're doing it kinda of like how you describe, basically you're doing it more for for um, you know, something or just that you like to do and, and to put things out there and, you know, that's a very admirable endeavor. And you know, if people don't like it, they don't have to read it. And likewise, I mean, if they gain something from it, then all the, all, all power. All power to yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now we all do things for, for similar reasons, I think, but just in different shapes and forms. Yeah. But So, I mean, as far as the 12 ish, we'll call it 12 ish books that you've written. Some, <laughs> some books. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you think has been the most rewarding for you or the most challenging for you to write?
0: The most rewarding, mm-hmm. without a shadow of a doubt, is because five years ago I started this charity to try and halt the decline in the wild lugger falcon. I spent two years researching and writing a book on luggers, both in the wild, in falconry, and just in general. And I travelled to India, Pakistan. I um, met with some really first-class wildlife photographers in India. And persuaded them to give me very kindly about 200 very high quality, previously unseen photographs of wild luggers. I persuaded 30 artists here in Britain, America, uh, Brazil, Portugal, Spain, to paint me original works of luggers for the book, both in wild and falconry. And most of the artists, I have to say, all bar about three, also donated the pictures when they were done, which were never asked to do, which is amazing. Um, And all the money from that book, we got a grant from the Falkenry Heritage Trust, or I got a grant. Mm. Uh, But my printer, who's done all my other books for me, said he would print it literally at cost price and not take a penny. The photographers in India wouldn't take a penny. None of the artists are taken a penny. And I haven't taken a penny. So other than the real, real close cut cost price of the book, every penny goes to Project Lugger. Last month, we had our first royalty check over not too long a period. And it was well over £4,000. Now, we've just as a charity been granted um, recognised status by the authorities in pakistan and we are now actually having a rehabilitation center built which we don't have the money for but this will help and this podcast will help because loads (laughs) of people will get in touch with (laughs) projectlugger.org and anything that helps will help we must save these luggers luggers are luggers are like your prairie suffer from those in the know know they're bloody good those who don't know and sit on the periphery think oh it's just a lugger it's just a prairie They have every right to be here, same as just a ger or just a peregrine. We must fight this. We can't let them go. And that's now my 24 hours, 7 seven-days-a-week passion. We must save these luggers. So whatever it takes.
1: So, I mean, as far as the the overall conservation effort for this particular species, I mean, what is it about, I mean, that that you're aware of anyway, what is it about... Whatever is going on that, that's causing this decline?
0: It's very simple, and I'm afraid it's very brutal, if I tell you the honest truth. I can give you all sorts of glib answers. The ba- bottom basic line is Lugger falcons are trapped in Pakistan up to 2,000 a year, and they're used as live bait for catching peregrines and sakers on the illegal, let me stress that, illegal falconry market in the UAE. It's not I'm not knocking Arab falconers. I'm not knocking Pakistani falconers. This is the same as a Mexican selling meths in Arizona. doesn't mean Arizonan people are bad or Mexicans are bad. There's just elements that are contributing to the drug scene. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with the luggers. But whereas the old trappers would use a lugger still as barrack, what they call barrack, that just is a, a word for bait, mm-hmm. They would sew the eyelids shut through the nictitating membrane and mm-hmm. close their nictitating membrane, sew the eyelids, tie the feet together, and hang a bundle of nooses. And when they saw a saker or a peregrine, they throw the lugger out. The saker or peregrine would grab the nooses, get ensnared, and the two would tumble to the ground. Mm-hmm. So they would get their peregrine or saker they wanted, and because of their uh, religious feelings, they would then un do all the eyelids and the lugger and let it go because it had served its purpose. The modern trappers are greedy and want more and more money, so they sew, sew the eyelids shut still. They tie the legs together, but they tie the bundle of the nooses to the front of the legs. So the saker or the peregrine grabs the lugger. Of course, the lugger fights because it's in pain. They, they The other falcon then grabs it with the other foot, and the lugger dies. Mm. So whereas before previously 100, 200 luggers were being taken from the wild, let's say 4%, 5% died of shock or accident or whatever. Now there's 2,000 being taken and 100% die. From a population of 12,000 approximately birds, they can't regenerate themselves that fast. So we, we've tried here, five years ago when I started this, we had no luggers. It was just an idea I had as I was driving home from somewhere. We now have 84 luggers. We have 10 breeding pairs. We have 30 partners in the UK. We have partners across Europe. We have a license to build a place in Pakistan. We're uh, ongoing. I like to say we are action in conservation because every penny. I go to Pakistan. um, One of the other trustees comes with me. We go to Germany, Belgium. Not one penny from the charity goes, if we want to go to Pakistan, we pay for it. Project doesn't The money the project raises only goes to help luggers and help them in a positive way, not in a mamsie pamsy. let's put up a nice leaflet. It goes in direct action, <laughs> paying trappers not to trap them, putting up these buildings that we're trying. We've even got a licence from the Pakistan government, which is unheard of, that they're going to let us send some captive bred birds from here, not for release. I mean, they would just die, obviously, but to put in they're going to Pakistan authorities are going to give us luggers that have been confiscated that are not fit for release but still do have a genuine quality of life and we will make up pairs between our captive bred luggers and wild luggers and and, and therefore strengthen the gene pool and the other thing is we have to be very careful i'm not a holy joe type person we can't go to pakistan as westerners and say, you mustn't trap these falcons and do this. And he says, why not? And you say, I don't like it. That's effectively (laughs) what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because I spoke to a trapper um, back in January in Pakistan, and he told me if he could catch three sakers, his family would live securely for the year. If he could catch a four, they would live well. Now, the trappers get a minuscule amount of money as to what the dealers get. But even so, the quality of life and cost of life in rural Pakistan is so, so... You know the the dollar a day um, sort of standard that people live by? It's nowhere near that in Pakistan. I met a man who considered himself well-paid and he was on 70 cents a day. That's a well-paid man. So if you give that man... Some of these trappers, if the illegal trappers want a saker, and he catches, say, an Altai Seika or catches a Calidus Peregrine, they'll give him a motorbike. This is what you're competing with. Mm. So we can't go there and moralise on them and beat them with a morality stick. We have to work with them. We can't stop them if we don't give them an, a workable alternative. So that's how, that's how we're approaching things.
1: Well, yeah, otherwise, where's the motivation in their eyes to to stop doing what they're doing? No, and we get, we, you
0: know, I'm not, I'm a scruffy old sod, that's how I am. But <laughs> you go there in your 50-pound Levi's and your 70-pound Dolce & Gabbana shoes and your 50-pound designer T-shirt, and you're telling a man that he, he can't earn 6 or $7 to feed his family for a month because we don't like it. You can't do that. Yeah. You, you have to approach it. At, you have to try and always see. It's like if you're doing falcon you have a problem bird. You try and switch your brain to look at the problem from the falcon's point of view, not yours. And it's the same with this. You have to address it in a r- responsible and reasonable way, I believe.
1: I didn't realize that that was that much of an issue. So, I mean, that's enlightening <sighs> huge, for, for me. Huge. So out of curiosity, how many, how many of these different trappers and stuff have you talked to over the years?
0: They run into hundreds, hundreds you know, if each one's taking four or five luggers to kill, you know, when it was maybe 30 trappers and they were taking four or five luggers, of which the vast majority survived, that's how life is. Mm-hmm. But when it suddenly becomes swamped, it's oil money, obviously, mm-hmm. it's become swamped and takes on a different uh, aspect, whole operation goes up not one gear, but 20 gears. You know, what, what can you do? Well, this is what you're fighting. And if I speak directly to a trapper and say, well, look, I'm going to give, you know, what, what does it cost to pay your rent and feed your family for a year? Mm -hmm. Okay. And he'll say, this is an example. He'll say it's equivalent to 54 US dollars. Okay. So I say, right, I'm going to give you $60 now, but you must give me your, because I will say this for uh, the Muslims in Pakistan. I've never found one that doesn't keep his word. Perhaps I've just been extra lucky. I don't know. But that's how I found them. And if that man gives me his word he won't trap, then I know he won't. But we can't go around all of Pakistan. <laughs> and sooner or later, we'll meet all the ones who don't keep their word.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's just people in general. Yes, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, that's it's kind of human nature in some ways. And I think at the root, most people are are pretty decent people you know but i mean you've got good and bad and everything you know for sure but you know i had no idea that i mean i had heard that that's kind of how they go about you know trapping some species in in other countries and and things like i didn't realize that it was that big or that you know that much of a it's huge
0: but you see it's changed so much What I've just told you is not my version. It's a true. If Mm -hmm. you, your own literature, if you go back to the Craighead brothers Mm -hmm. and life with an Indian prince, Mm -hmm. the Prince Bapu that they stay with, there's pictures in the book, they use a lugger for barrack to trap another bird. But it's one of the prince's favourite birds. And when they get home, it's only horse hair that they put through. They undo the horse hair. Yeah, you and know, they they put its equipment back on, and he's a happy lugger again. And just probably <laughs> thinks Phew, outsmarted that saker, but it doesn't. Well, now the money is so critical, they would rather kill the lugger, but no, they've got the saker than risk it not actually getting caught properly.
1: That's mind blowing. It,
0: the, the effect is devastating. Jeez,
1: no, I had like, and I also had no idea that the overall population numbers have gotten that low.
0: They've gone from over 100,000 to around approximately 12,000 in 40 years. That's insane. <laughs> it can't go on. It just can't go on.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, if that's the case, then, yeah, another handful of years, they'll all be gone.
0: Well, it's, And obviously, from a trapper's point of view, mm-hmm. they don't think, oh, well, I'll take this juvenile lugger. They think, I've caught this lugger. They don't care if it's a 10-year-old female or a 10-month-old female. Mm-hmm. It's going to die either way. Yeah. So the the breeding stock is getting knocked out.
1: That's really, yeah, that's really unfortunate. I had no idea that that was that much of an issue. But But anyway,
0: we're fighting it and we're very lucky. We have, um, I've been over quite a number of times to Pakistan now to plead and cajole people. And we now have the Ministry of Climate Change on our side. I have have a little incident if you have a few seconds. I was going to Pakistan uh, last year when COVID was rife in Britain. And I had my ticket and I had my visa and I had my letter of invitation. And I turned up at Heathrow Airport to get on my flight and the lady said, can I ask you why you're going to Pakistan? I said, yeah, I'm going for Conservation Matters. Oh, wildlife and birds, you mean? And I said, yeah. she said sorry, you can't go on the plane. It's um, people that need to travel only. And I said, well, look, this is important. And she said, "I said, here's a letter from a minister of Pakistan inviting me over. No, it's not important enough. And I said, well, what could I do to to convince you that I need to go? I said, if you spoke personally to a cabinet minister in Pakistan, would that help you? She said, if you could do that, I'll let you on the plane. So I opened my WhatsApp and put Pakistan government ministers. I said, there you are, take your pick. <laughs> she And she did, to be fair, did phone one. <laughs> and he he sent an email to her desk at her counter, and twenty minutes later, I was on the plane. That that's my braggy moment. I've got cabinet <laughs> ministers in my WhatsApp. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's unfortunate that you even had to do that, though. I mean, what? Well, I mean, anyway, we we won't launch into that whole other no, uh, it's not. a c word conversation and stuff, and that's definitely not the time or the place for it, and. But like that just astounds me. That I mean, if you've got everything that you need, I mean, what what business is, is it anyone stopped we'll to, go stop back to the closed are, mind? Yeah, effectively. It, for sure. Yeah, no, that's that's unfortunate. But I mean, out of curiosity, though, going back, is it just is there any one particular trait that these birds have though that just made you absolutely fall in love with them more than anything else?
0: Have you ever trained a prairie? Yes. Right. When you first got it, did you ever get to the stage two or three, three days in? You think, why
1: did I start this? Um, I think everybody has in almost every species that they've flown to, but yes, prairie is more
0: than normal. And I would say luggers are your Asian prairie. mm I, I don't know how many I've trained because I've trained so many for the project. mm -hmm. So I train them, get them going, pass them on to their new homes or whatever. But I still now, the one I got last week, I think, why didn't I call it a day with the last one? But I know in a week's time, I'll love him to death. So Mm -hmm. they're just, they're just, they're bundles of hate and feathers. (laughs) But once they turn the corner, just like a prairie, they're fantastic. Fantastic.
1: What was, I mean, what's been your favorite thing here to hunt with them? Over here, mm-hmm.
0: uh, if it's a female rooks,
1: mm-hmm.
0: males will take rooks on, but males will get a battering on the ground. So, But females um, ball them up quite nicely. Okay. Uh, and males I like to fly starlings with because if you fly starlings properly in open ground, it's like rook-hawking but in miniature. You know, the, the male lugger still has to shepherd the starlings up so as he can end up in a commanding position. I, I don't like uh, long wing flights where they just fly and grab. Mm-hmm. I, I like my passion, the, the luggers I fly because of the project, but my own personal passion is grouse hawking in Scotland. I did that for about 38 consecutive years. And that's my passion in life. Running good pointers and setters, flying peregrines. Having said that, you know, the best grouse hawk I ever had was a one pound, one ounce, red nape Shaheen. I killed more grouse with that falcon than any other. And if first ever true flight he had at grouse, he killed two out of the same coffee. I don't
1: know, I'm trying to find words to, to even describe some of this stuff because a lot of these species aren't flown in the U.S. No. And that's why I'm so curious about, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned rook hawking and mentioned these different types of things. Well, I mean, we, we don't know what that really looks no, like. I mean, no. we've seen... Videos here and there, things like that. But as you know, it's totally different to experience something like that firsthand. But do me a favor, though, and just kind of walk through a little bit what that type of hunt looks like. Because as I said, I mean, I, I'm pretty ignorant, I've not got a chance to really see much of it or.
0: On paper, not in reality, but on paper, I suppose the closest would be your sage grouse hawking. Okay. Because the country is spectacular. Very wide, very open. The very nature of the country has to be like that to hold the quarry species. Ours is not quite so open. Obviously, you could probably fit Britain in Wyoming or something. We're so small. <laughs> but uh, the more, I mean, the more I used to hunt was around about uh, forty thousand acres, probably of which eight ten thousand was unhawkable realistically. But there were lots of flats and gently rolling hills and things. Uh, because of the nature, it's moorland and it's up north. There's always winds. It's just whether it's a stiff wind, really stiff wind, or bloody gale is the, the sort of difference. Um, so it tests peregrines to the utmost. It tests good hunting dogs. So pointers and setters have to work, not just amble along. It's exactly the same as your sage. I've been sage-grouse hawking many times, and I, I, it really, I really like it. Um, because the dog works the same, the falcon must work equally as hard to be in a commanding position. I mean, I'm very lucky. I've been with Ed Pitcher and Steve Chingren and um, with Steve Martin and people like that. So I've seen good people. Um, but grouse hawking is just—if you kill a grouse with a falcon, it's just like can't explain it. I—I <laughs> I don't want to say on your podcast exactly how it makes me feel, but. It does make me feel like
1: that. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. but Well, in regards to like the setup for how you like to hunt with luggers, though, kind of walk through that a little bit, too, because once again, that's another species that we hardly ever see.
0: I'm old-fashioned. I like to go to a set of fields or a landscape where I have permission to hunt, and I know I'm probably going to find rooks. And I stop on its periphery when I get there, and I test which way the wind is so I know which way I want to fly because you're obviously out of the hood, you're going to slip dead into the wind. And then I drive to wherever it is that will position me that when I walk forward, not drive forward, the rooks will be in front of me in hopefully a slippable position. And that's what to do. And then I strike the braces on the hood, but I never slip as they're lifting because it always leads to confusion and I guarantee it will be a, a rubbish flight. I wait, I'm not talking to their are 100 yards away, but I wait till they're actually up and going. So they've probably lifted 15, 20 feet and moved 20 yards. So they are now a mass in movement. Then I slip the falcon. But I never, ever, this is probably me as opposed to English or anybody else. I never, ever, ever throw a falcon from the fist. I think the two to three seconds I might gain... I've taken away her sense of balance, her sense of where I am and where I'm going. And I think if she chooses not to go, there's a very good reason. And quite, when I was younger, I always used to be confused when I flew a haggard that it would say, shoot off to the right or the left. I didn't know enough about what I was doing to know she knew more about the wind and was working it. But right from day one, I've never thrown a falcon from the fist. I think if she wants to go... She'll go. If she doesn't, there was a reason. And the reason won't be because she's fat or out of condition. The reason will be she doesn't think the flight's worth taking on. So that's how I generally go about it. And then despite my age and my size, I shuffle along as quick as my <laughs> legs will let me because quite often a rook will be a uh, a bit of a handful for a lugger. They will subdue them, but they sometimes struggle to kill them occasionally within a flock of rooks in this country, you'll get an odd family of crows. So maybe you'll see a 100 blackbirds sitting out in a field, but three of them might be a mother and father and son crow. And if the lugger grabs a crow, the other two will attack her to defend their young. And a a lugger can't fight off a a carrion crow whilst both its feet are engaged. So I get there as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. But then as you get older, of course, you learn that if you slip into the wind at a flight... It's going to come downwind. Mm. So don't run too hard at first. Just sort of keep things in view and then go from there.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny kind of seeing how birds learn those lessons so fast. Yeah, They, they really do. I
0: have a fr- friend in Germany who legally hunts herons under license from the government because in Bavaria where he lives there's lots of fish farms and he hunts uh, herons. And the people want the government want them scared but not slaughtered because he could go there with a gun and shoot four or five. So he flies them with a falcon. So he kills quite a few, but of course he's killing one a day as opposed to 10, 20. But he's the same. He strikes the hood. And it's bizarre because you know, you've crept from the car to find eight herons sitting on the edge of a pond. And then we'll get to 200 yards away and then he'll yell and scream and slap his thighs. Because if you've ever seen herons flown with a falcon, They'll lift, and you just roll your hands and a falcon spreads its wings. It still can't see them. But the herons now have seen the falcon. And they'll ring, normally twice, big rings. It takes them up 100, 120 foot, just in two rings. And then they go, they, the direction. It's when they then go, he takes the hood off and slips the falcon. So we have some classic. And we even have proper old school ringing flights that you read about in the books. Sport is tremendous just tremendous
1: nice yeah i mean everybody like i said has their different things and you know some people love that those types of flights and i mean just just like the guys that fly merlins on flocks of starlings and stuff in the in Good the fun. u.s that's yeah. just
0: hawking in minutes yeah
1: yeah i mean it's it's um like some people's things some people i mean I, I find all of it fascinating but you know like i said it's uh that's interesting though i mean thanks for sharing that and and uh like I, said, I, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant to that. i it's one of the many things that I haven't got to see in person yet. So
0: none of us have done it all. There's always <laughs> things to say. <see>, always <laughs> things
1: to. do. For sure. Well, this would be a good time for you to share, um, one of your favorite either hunting stories or stories about that one bird that most people have that that just sticks out in in their mind, or um, whichever one of those that you would you would prefer.
0: Probably that the the um. Story I would like to tell that, to me, epitomises learning what you're doing and not learning. Many years ago, I went on a grouse moor with a friend, and it was I I never hunt grouse myself till September. We're legally allowed to hunt them from August the 12th, the glorious 12th, we call it. But there's so many young grouse still around, it's it's just killing for the sake of killing. If you've got a, a young bird that needs entering, perhaps you could justify it to yourself, but I don't hunt till September, and normally second week, not first week. But anyway, I went with a friend to a moor, and he had a, a massive, and it was massive, Jer Falken. And I had my little 17-ounce Shaheen. I'd just taken it up for some exercise. <laughs> and I we walked onto the moor, and I said, oh, we'll have to come off and come back tomorrow. And he said to me, why is that? I said, look over there. There's a pair of Arctic skewers, and they're going down onto the moor and then lifting up. So I said, they've obviously... Got a nest. I said, they'll be ferocious if we uh, attempt to fly a falcon here. And the guy said, do you know how much this jet Falcon weighs? I said, I still wouldn't. If it was me, I wouldn't fly. I wouldn't fly if it was a golden eagle, not with Arctic skewers. He said, the day I have to worry about Arctic skewers will be the day I give up. (laughs) I took the hood off, cast the falcon off because he's not a believer in me, like me. Anyway, the falcon had gone 100 yards. And it was on its back in the heather, screaming with two Arctic skewers, stooping at it. So because I'm one of those people who's full of sympathy and empathy, and I do love fellow human beings, I said, is this the day you give up then?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's kind of the compassion and empathy that our group has too. If I could tell you one very quick story, a, a
0: story I love. I was hawking many years ago with a man I loved dearly. Uh, it's such a shame he's gone. He was such... A proper gentleman. I was hawking with Roger Upton, a hawking grouse in Scotland. And there were a couple of other, I think David Frank from Western Sporting was there. Anyway, we were hawking grouse. And it was the first day of the season. And like many old falconers with grouse hawks have done, that's all they ever do. We don't actually retrain them, we just cut their weight down a little bit, take them out of the aviary, put the gear on and go and fly them because you're in open moorland. Anyway, he had two falcons with him. I'll be brief. And he, his dog came on point. It was one of his old favourite pointers. And he unhooded the falcon, let her go, and she went off a little way and sat on a rock. And he said, oh, she'll rouse and mute in a minute and then she'll be gone. Well, he, she didn't. Swung the lure, she wouldn't come. So he walked all the way over, picked her up, hooded her, brought her back, put her gear, put her back on the cage. Took the tiercel off, very famous tiercel he had at a time. Took all its gear off. Yep, dog's still on point, no problem cast the tear tear Tearsol went off, went into a puddle to have a bath. So he walked over, got a tear saw, hooded it up. He said, do you want to fly? I said, no, no. And dog was still on point and he just went, you all right? You all right? So the dog, if it was going to go, would go. Okay, put the, fal- the tear sloth back on the couch, took the falcon again to crop, gave her a chick leg just to sort of stimulate things a little bit. Let her go. Up she went this time properly. We walked round and headed the point. Now By now it's got to be 20, 25 minutes. We headed the point point. We waited till she was in exactly the right position. The dog was called Duffy. And Roger said, right, get him up, Duffy. And Duffy just sort of looked at him and wandered off. Now, you and I would curse and swear and, oh, my God. And he just looked at Duffy and he said, Duffy, old friend, you lied to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's my favourite Hawking
0: story. <laughs> and that, to me, was the ethos of the man. It, everything was just a gentle enjoyment of life. No need to curse and swear. Dog didn't deserve it. Didn't do any good anyway. So <laughs> lovely, lovely man.
1: That's funny. Yeah, we all have those moments where, you know, those little mishaps and stuff. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what makes everything, I don't know, frustrating and worth, worthwhile at the same time, I guess. It's
0: what makes a sport brilliant because when that then goes right, it's, life's just hunky-dory. I'm
1: sure. Yeah, you can't appreciate all the good times without the bad. No, no. Yeah. Well, perfect. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, Do you have um, any last bit of pearls of wisdom or advice that you'd like to pass on to other? Take up a
0: different sport. (laughs) Now, my pearl of wisdom, if I could, please, I'd like to be blatantly rude and plug. Please go to the website, www.projectlugger.org. I'm not asking you for money. I'm not asking you to contribute. But just have a look. The more people that are aware of what we're trying to do and why can only be of help. So thank you very much. And whoever endures this and listens to it, <laughs> thank you for bearing with us.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for your time as well, and I appreciate you giving me the, um, the time out of your, your busy schedule to be uh, marketing and, and kind of spreading the word. Happy and to help.: yeah.
0: Folconry is important. It's, it's up to the old. Older people have a duty. To pass it on to younger people. That's how I look at it.
1: Yeah. Well, like I said, I appreciate you doing your part and, um, yeah, I mean, taking on such a, a noble cause. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Appreciate that.
1: All right. Well, we'll talk more and, um, you know, get to know each other just a little bit better over the rest of the weekend here. But best of luck and hope you uh, get the word spread some more.
0: Thank you very much indeed. All right. Talk Ple- soon. Pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah.